Last Thanksgiving, my in-laws were visiting from Tennessee, and that evening after some company had left the home, my family and I gathered in the living room and turned on a movie that we enjoyed together. But as movies tend to do, a moment of tension arose in the film, and it got a few people in the room a little nervous, and it was not my children, which is typically the case, it was my wife and my mother-in-law. And they kind of went over by the door in the living room and kind of huddled together. And then one of them came over and whispered to me, is it all going to turn out okay? And I thought to myself, what kind of movie do you think this is? Of course it's going to have a happy ending. But perhaps you have experienced that sense yourself. The ending is in some way in doubt. Will the good guys win? Will the bad guys be destroyed? And so, in that case, the tension was too much, but uh, we don't watch movies that don't have happy endings in our house. So, there's that. But have you ever asked that question? Is it all going to turn out okay? I mean, like, do you ever read through the Chicago Tribune and just want to throw up at the kinds of stories you read? Do you turn on the TV or the radio or scroll through your social media feed and hear of another family or another friend that just got destroyed by sin, and you just think, good night, will this ever end? Our passage today is intended to address that concern. We're in Revelation chapter 20. It was intended, it was written by the Apostle John to address those questions of Christians living in a very different part of the world about 1930 years ago or so. But the concerns that they were facing then still exist today, still exist in your life today. Those Christians back there were being tempted to compromise with the world, they were being persecuted. For their faith. They were losing their jobs, their reputations, and in some cases their lives, their very lives, for the sake of their allegiance to Jesus. Obviously, it's quite different today. We don't... Okay, yeah, people lose their jobs. People lose their reputations. And in some parts of the world, they lose their lives if they demonstrate their allegiance to Jesus. If you do that, you will likely be thought a fool. You may lose your job or some other freedom. All you have to do is scan through the last few years of Supreme Court cases and see if Christians have total freedom, whether their freedoms get restricted, whether you could lose your reputation or your job. We could go on and on. And again, in some parts of the world, you very well could lose your life if you demonstrate allegiance to Jesus in some tangible way. So what would encourage you, if you're living in those circumstances, you're living 1930 years ago or you're living right now, you're living in Asia Minor or you're living right here, what would encourage you to hear? What would help you be faithful? What would help you in those circumstances? I think it's the same message now as it was back then. I think we need to hear the truth that John wrote to the Christians back then. And the truth that he wrote to them, the truth that he wrote to you, is to never 
doubt that God will ultimately overcome every wrong. Never doubt that God will ultimately overcome every wrong. Would you follow along as I read Revelation 20? If you're using one of the Bibles provided, just open it to the very last page and probably turn in one page and you'll find it. Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. John describes, we've just read, three ways in which God ultimately overcomes every wrong. So if the big idea of this passage is that you should never doubt that God will overcome every wrong, you want to then ask the question, how does he do that? How does he get the job done? And the passage gives us three ways. The first is that he defeats the evil one. That's in verses 1 through 6. He defeats the evil one. Now perhaps as I read these first six verses particularly, you realize, oh, this is that passage. Like I've read this passage before, or I've heard people talk about this passage well, my guess is some of the questions that theologians wrestle with about this passage are probably not as big a deal to every single one of us as they are to a few people among us. And so 
I'm not going to spend a lot of time, actually, hardly any time, trying to debate the different views of this passage. If you have live questions about that, there will certainly be opportunities to ask those questions of Clayton. But uh, you're welcome to ask me anytime. Just saying, uh, I don't think, let's put it this way, I don't think that when a group of Christians in Asia Minor received this letter from John, they thought to themselves, dude, we're going to need some serious charts to understand what John just wrote. I just don't think that thought would have crossed their minds. I think they got the point of this passage. I think they realized, oh, God wins and we reign with Him. That's amazing. That's the big idea of this passage. I don't have to worry about whether God will actually win on the last day. He totally will. And I don't exactly know when that last day is going to be or exactly what every one of these phrases is going to be, but hey, I got the point. I think that's what first century Christians would have gathered and really would have been encouraged by from this passage. But you notice even in verse 1, you see an angel coming down from heaven, and he's holding something in his hand. It's the key to the bottomless pit. And that pit showed up earlier, I believe it was in chapter 12, maybe a few other spots as well. But the point of the reference earlier in the book to the bottomless pit was, that's where Satan dwells, that's where Satan comes from, but he doesn't have the key himself. He is not sovereign over where he is or over how much power he has. Every lit, little bit, I should say, of Satan's power is under God's control, is under God's reign. There's one sovereign in the universe, and his name is not Satan. His name is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's the one who's in control, and that's why this key is in the hand of an angel coming down from heaven, not coming up from hell. He's holding this key. He also has a great chain. He's, in other words, Satan is bound. You see that in verse 2. But he describes, John describes this creature, this being, in multiple different ways. One is the dragon. That connects you with chapter 12 and pretty much every chapter since then, in some way or another, it's referring to the dragon, which is Satan himself. He also calls Satan that ancient, ancient serpent, which takes your mind back to Genesis chapter 3 and his desire to, rule, uh, to ruin God's plan for the world. God made a perfect world and put perfect people into it, and Satan ruined it through his temptation as the ancient serpent. And so John just wants to draw our minds back to Genesis 3 and say, remember the beginning of the story? It went real bad, real fast. And all the way from Genesis 3 on, you start to ask the question, how's this thing going to end up? Like, it sure looks like God's not getting his way. That would be a terrible conclusion for us to draw as God's people. God is absolutely getting his way. I think the question, though, that we want to ask is when we come to the end of verse 2, is he bound for a thousand years? Like, is that now or is that later? Or is that all in the past to some extent? It's certainly not all in the past based on the way the passage describes this. But again, this is the, the controversial moment of this passage. And essentially, what you want to think through is where else in the Bible does God use numbers to explain things or to describe things? And he particularly does that in a lot of ways in Revelation. 
Like earlier in Revelation, I believe it was in late in chapter 2, we saw John trying to encourage, or really it was Jesus giving these letters to these churches, trying to encourage Christians there and saying, you're going to suffer for 10 days. Well, anybody can put up with anything for 10 days, by and large. I don't think those are like 10, like, okay, Monday, Tuesday. When, I think it's a way of saying a pretty short time. Like, it's going to hurt. You're going to suffer. But it's not for very long. So just hold on tight and trust God in this. There are other parts where Revelation uses numbers over and over again. But let's just take that 10 example. What's 10 times 10? I don't, I'm pretty bad at math, but I'm pretty sure that's 100. What's well, 100 times 10? I'm pretty sure that's 1,000. Well, here he talks about a thousand years. I'm pretty sure, personally speaking, that this is referring to a symbolic long period of time. Not one number greater than the number 999 years. I think, it's, I think there's reasonable reasons to expect that this is talking about a symbolic time in which Satan is already bound and that what John is doing is the same thing he's done throughout this book, particularly from chapter 6 through chapter 20 here, is he tells the story, and then he tells the story, and then he tells the story, and we're about the fifth or sixth time he's told the story, and each time, you remember, there's these kind of linguistic clues, if you want to put it that way. In other words, he uses repeated words and phrases that tell you, oh, I think he's telling the same story. Like, they're all ending with this huge war where the bad guys lose. And there's this judgment, and there's thunder, and there's earthquake. And he kind of keeps doing that over and over again. And I think that's exactly what he's doing here again in chapter 20. He's picturing the, t- the period of time from when Jesus died and rose again all the way through to when Jesus returns, which we just sing about. Lord, come quickly. Lo, he comes with clouds descending. Beautiful. 250-year-old text there. And he's picturing that time from his first coming to his second coming in a variety of different ways, but as a way of saying, at the end, God wins. And you can trust that. You can take that to the bank. And again, let me say something I've said a couple other times elsewhere in this series on the book of Revelation. I am totally fine if you disagree with what I just said in the last five minutes. Like, totally fine. You can be a member here. You can probably even be an elder here. If you're a man and you fit other qualifications. But I'm just saying, like, this is not a big deal. I think we make it a big deal. And if you want to make it a big deal, there are videos I can send you. There are books I can send you. There are articles I can send you. I'm just saying, there are questions that are really important. Do you believe Jesus is God? There are questions that are pretty important. Do you believe that you should be baptized after you have put your faith in Christ, you have a reasonable understanding of the gospel. Like those, that's first level, do you believe in Jesus? That's second level, have you been baptized since you were converted? This is like third level stuff. Really not super important stuff. Is it in the Bible? Absolutely. So I'm preaching it. But if you disagree with me, or anybody else in our church, that's fine. We should be able to like shake hands or hug or whatever it is that you do to show I love you and be totally fine as co-members of a congregation. And here's one of the reasons I say that. Again, because I don't think anybody in the first century were like, 
John, if you don't mind like attaching a PDF of a chart that shows me how I should understand this in light of everything else you've given me. No one did that. They read this and thought, ha, ah, I get the big idea. Secondly, you really only need to have a super convincing view of this doctrine of what we call the millennium, these thousand years. If you're going to preach this passage, or be a pastor in general probably, a church leader in general, because this affects how you put other passages together. Or if you're a super dedicated Bible student, which I know many of you are, and I commend and love about so many of us, and you want to be able to put every passage together in a coherent, comprehensive, sensible way, then you'll probably need to wrestle through this passage a little bit. But I would say your view of these first few verses in this passage are not going to affect your need to fight sin. You cannot be like, see, I'm a premillennialist, so I can take money out of the bank, you know, like out of the drawer at the bank uh, without my boss watching and just kind of like stick it in my pocket and walk out like nothing happened. No one can be like, see, I'm a millennial, so I can look at pornography. No problem. It won't bother anybody else. God will be totally fine with that because of my view on it. Like, these things are so inconsequential to how you live the Christian life. So please don't get yourself all wrapped up in the details of this, of this passage. I think we can get the sense. No matter how you land on this question, you still need to endure suffering. You still need to fight sin and pursue holiness and love your church members and love your husband or your wife and your children. The point of verses 1 through 6 is that God defeats the evil one. Satan's gonna die. Whether he's bound right now or will be bound in the future. You see that he was thrown into the pit. That shows you he's not in control. He's being thrown by somebody else. In this case, it's the angel, which very well may represent Jesus based on other passages here in Revelation. And he's thrown into a pit. It's shut. It's sealed. So he can't deceive the nations any longer. Again, if that's happening right now, I think that means that the gospel can be preached freely, that we can live our Christian lives to some extent freely and so forth. But there's going to come a day, the end of verse 3 says, when he must be released for a little while. Why in the world would God do that? Again, whether you're a premillennialist, amillennialist, and so forth, why in the world would God release him? The Bible doesn't actually tell us, but I can make a pretty good guess. It's so that God can be glorified. So he can show his absolute power one more time over this beast who sought to derail the whole plan and failed miserably. So Christian, celebrate that God defeats the evil one. This is one of the ways he will certainly overcome every wrong. Recently read an article about Satan, and particularly about what would happen if Satan wrote a book on parenting. This is from a pastor in Canada named Tim Challies. He's a Christian blogger as well as a pastor. He's written several excellent books. I'm happy to commend to you. Commend his website to you, challies.com. I can send you a link if that helps. We wrote an article probably back about a month or two ago called If Satan Wrote a Parenting Book, something along those lines. Let me read a brief section to you from this book. And all of this is to tell you we should be really grateful that Satan dies, that he doesn't get his way because he hates you. Remember that from chapter 12? The dragon hates you, wants to destroy you. Here we go. Here's one of the ways he tries to destroy you, by writing a book on parenting. If Satan wrote a book on parenting, he would want parents to know that they should prioritize their children ahead of their marriage. He would want parents to prefer their children to one another. 
to orient their lives around their children instead of around their marriage. Ideally, he would pit a husband against his wife and a wife against her husband in the raising of the children and in all their activities. If Satan wrote a book on parenting, he would want parents to believe that children must be kept constantly busy and that they thrive best when they are enrolled in every extracurricular course and play on every team. He would want all of this activity to dominate the family's time and attention. He would insist it's best if the family reaches the end of the week and collapses with exhaustion because of all they have done. I'll read two more paragraphs here. If Satan wrote a book on parenting, he would want parents to prioritize participation in sports and activities ahead of participation in the local church. The church should take second or third place in their list of priorities. There's time for that later in life. At this stage, it's best to immerse them in activities and experiences. And if you're worn out and need a day of rest, rest at home on Sunday. If Satan wrote a book on parenting, he would want people to believe children are sexual creatures who need to have their sexuality awoken at a very early age. They should see many things, have many experiences, and consider many options and alternatives. He would love and laud a term like gender assigned at birth. Let them see all kinds of expressions and gender and sexuality. Let them ask who they are and how they, how they would like to express themselves. Let them do this at the youngest age possible. If Satan wrote a book on parenting, he would prescribe that parents give their children early and unfettered access to electronic devices and social media platforms. Let them use TikTok. Let them browse Instagram. Let them spend their days on Reddit. No harm will come. Satan hates you. He wants to destroy you. And he's pretty good at it. We looked on Wednesday night at Ephesians chapter 6. What's the phrase there about Satan? Does anything come to mind when you think about Ephesians 6 and Satan's part? What's he doing? He's shooting fiery arrows at you. Those things are going to destroy you. That's his goal anyway. How does he get those arrows into your heart? How does he hit the target in your home or in this church? Because you know what? He aims those things at Christian churches and at Christian homes and at Christian hearts. He hates you. And we know from the book of John especially that no Christian can be taken out of God's hand. Like if you are in Christ, your faith is secure. Your eternal destiny is secure. You are truly safe in the hands of God. So be encouraged by that. But Satan still wants to make it super difficult for you. Still wants to discourage you by seeing other people who you thought were Christians, who sat down the row from you in church, who now want nothing to do with Jesus. And so he shoots arrows at you. And he does that by trying to divide Christians over inconsequential theological matters. He does that by trying to get parents to be passive in the way that they shepherd their children, and so on. He does this by trying to get couples to fight over how they're going to spend their money or where they're going to go on vacation. These are Satan's fiery darts. He wants to defeat you, but verses 1 through 6 tell us that God defeats the evil one. We sang about this last week in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I just want to read a brief line of this song. I don't know if you remember it very well, but He's our helper. God is our helper amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe. Does that sound like this passage here? That ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, the deceiver? Our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. That means he has 
really good ways of getting the arrows to stick in your heart and in your home. On earth is not his equal. The rest of the song tells you that there is somebody who's better than him and he's going to win. And that's Jesus. You see in verse 4 here, we'll briefly move through these next three verses as we see that God defeats the evil one. You see a reference here to those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I think that's those who have died, who, have, who are already reigning with Christ in heaven. I saw the souls of those, not the bodies, the souls of those who had been beheaded, so those who have been martyred for the faith, not just beheaded. I think, again, it's symbolic of saying they've lost their life for their faith. And this probably includes those who just held on tight all the way to the end, despite the fact that the world is flashing at them and saying, come on, come over here and worship us. Get our gadgets and our trinkets and you'll be really satisfied. But those who held on tight, who kept holding fast to the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, those, here's another group of of these Christians who have died, those who have not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Again, Satan marks all of his people. It makes sense here that God marks all of his people. They're invisible marks to us, but they're totally visible to God. He knows who's his. And all of his will certainly be reigning with him forever. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, I think those are unbelievers who have already died throughout the church age and so forth. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. I think that's kind of a parenthetical statement. He's kind of like, so this is what happens to those if your faith is in Christ. You reign with Christ till the end of the age. And if you're not in Christ, you are spiritually dead. You've experienced the first death. The first resurrection is those who have been converted, have put their faith in Christ, have been made alive by the Holy Spirit, they've received this first life, and they died and they went to heaven. They're spiritually alive. And they're not going to experience what verse 6 calls the second death. So you have physical death. Everyone's going to experience that. But the second death is for those who don't put their faith in Christ. That's spiritual death. So there's two deaths and there's two lives. If you get two lives, physical life and spiritual life, you only have one death. But if you only have one life, physical death, in other words, you don't put your faith in Christ, you only have one life, you're going to have two deaths, physical death and spiritual death. Does that make sense? So you have two lives, you get one death. You have one life, you get two deaths. Again, i can happy to explain that better later. God defeats the evil one. That's how he ultimately overcomes every wrong. Verses 7 through 10 tells us that he wins the final battle. Again, we see in verse 7 that Satan will be released from his prison. In this sense, John's kind of backing up and like, let me kind of go over this with you again. It's going to happen. Satan's going to be released from his prison, from the pit, the bottomless pit. He'll come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. What John is doing here is taking a sponge full of the Old Testament and wringing it dry into the book of Revelation. He's been doing this from chapter 1 on. I mean, it's like every sentence is in some way baptized in the Old Testament, just dunked in it. And here he is. I just used three different metaphors about water. Sorry about that. All that to say, John is loading up this passage with the Old Testament saying, if you want to understand what I mean, go back to Ezekiel 38. Or in this case, go back to Daniel 7. Or in this case, go back to Daniel 12. He's doing this throughout the book of Revelation, particularly from books like Ezekiel and Daniel. Those are some of the harder books of the Old Testament to understand. I haven't ever preached them. I may not ever preach them. (laughs) 
Maybe I will. I'm just saying, those are really hard. But this whole phrase about Gog and Magog and the four corners of the earth, it's basically saying the army that's coming from all over the earth is going to come and try and destroy you. Well, we already saw this in the Battle of Armageddon. We already saw this back in chapter 16. We could go on and on. John's recapitulating. That's the word. He's telling you the story again. Recycle, however you want to use it or describe it. He's telling you the same story. There's going to be a great battle. A last battle. And do you know how God overcomes every wrong? He wins the final battle. That's what verses 7 and 10 are telling us. There are people that want to come to destroy God's people. That's the saints there. A saint is anyone who has been made alive by Christ, which means that they've been made holy by Christ. That's what makes you a saint, is that you're alive in Christ. You're holy in Christ. And the beloved city, there's different ways we can understand that. It's probably just a way of referring to all of God's people. And the enemy, Satan, is bringing all of our adversaries against us, and they're marching up to destroy us. And the end of verse 9. Boom! The battle's over. You didn't have to do a thing. God wins. Every time. Fire falls from heaven. That's from the Old Testament. Multiple places. Again, Ezekiel. Think of the story in uh, 1 Kings of fire coming down and destroying the altar and so forth. God wins there as well. And the the devil who had deceived, you look at how many times Satan is described as the deceiver, the one who just is out to make you believe lies about God, about his word, and about yourself. He's trying to deceive you. He's trying to do that across the world. That's why he says he's trying to deceive the nations. The devil who had deceived the nations was thrown down where the beast and the false prophet were. We saw that in last week's passage. In other words, it's like the, old te- uh, the, the book of Revelation is kind of saying, like, so there's these bad guys, they're destroyed. And then there's kind of like the next really bad level of bad guys, they're destroyed. And then the next level, they're destroyed too. And why is it so important we understand this? Because we can't live happily ever after if you know the bad guy's still out there. Like, no good movie ends with, and he might come back and, like, crawl out of a hole somewhere, unless they're going to try and make billions of dollars off you by making a sequel. Then they're going to have the guy be like, well, did he really die? Or not? I'm not really sure. But if the story has a happy ending, the bad guy dies. And that's what the point is here. Yeah, the bad guys die, their bosses die, and the boss of the bad guys, he dies too. That's what's happening here in chapter 20. God wins the final battle. And as you think through the Old Testament, you think of other passages that make you be like, oh, that's what that's about. And I think the most obvious one of those is the one that we all heard a thousand times as children, David and Goliath. What's the end of that story? You've got a bad guy hating God and God's people. And what happens? The victor comes and destroys the bad guy and lops his head off. That's a picture of saying, if you've never heard that story before, I'd be happy to go over that with you sometime. But that's a way of saying, God wins. Like, God's king there, God's anointed person there, overcomes evil Goliath. And that's a picture of the fact that Jesus comes out to rescue the bride from the mouth of the dragon. And it's glorious. And you start to see this pop up all over the Bible when you look for it. God wins the final battle. 
So God will ultimately overcome every wrong. Never doubt it, friends. He defeats the evil one. He wins the final battle. And in verses 11 through 15, he accomplishes perfect justice. He accomplishes perfect justice. Where does he do this? At this throne. It's distinguished. It's great, as opposed to these other thrones that are mentioned previously in verse 4. Those are cool thrones. But this throne's great. It's bigger. It's better. It's brighter. It's also white, indicating that it's holy, just like Jesus is wearing a white robe. And God, when you see him in chapter 1, is bright as all daylight, and it's immense and beautiful and glorious and splendid. And here you see this throne that's the same way because the one who's sitting on it is God and Christ himself. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away. Just means the world comes to an end, as we've seen multiple times in this book. Again, the world can only come to one end. And I think the book tells us over and over again how that's going to happen, what that's going to look like, different layers, so to speak, of what that's going to look like. Here you have no more earth, no more sky. There's no place for them. What this is doing is setting you up for next week. All right, so come back next week. When there is a new heaven and there is a new earth. The word heaven here in verse 20, chapter 21, verse 1, is referring to the new sky that is fleeing away here in verse 11. Why is it fleeing away? Because God's doing it. Because God's getting his way. Because God's going to accomplish perfect justice. And he does this by opening books. I think this is a way of saying God knows everything about everyone from all of time. Which means he's going to get it right on the last day. Years ago, NBC did some kind of a show about heaven and earth and what it's like to try and live in light of those from a secular perspective. And one of the hinges of at least a couple of those seasons, I understand, is that they got it wrong. And the, you know, like the justices of the universe got it wrong. And so that's why this one person got into heaven because they didn't realize there was somebody else by the same name who actually should have gotten into heaven. My point is, that doesn't happen. God gets it right. Like, there's no wrong address. There's no, like, oops, we put that in the wrong section of this book. God knows everything about you, and he's going to accomplish perfect justice. You see the sea giving up the dead who are in it. That's just a way of, again, the, the sea throughout the book of Revelation is just the place of the evil. You saw the beast coming out of the sea in chapter 13. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. Why is that? Because Jesus holds the key to death and hell. That's in chapter 1. And this is the second death, that you go to the lake of fire, verse 14 says, that you actually die spiritually. Yet you will be tormented. You will be put into this lake of fire. Verse 11 says, tormented day and night forever and ever. That's what Satan and the beast and the false prophet get. It's what all those who align with them and say, we value these priorities as opposed to God's. You're on one side or the other. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, we want to urge you to throw your lot in with Christ. To join Christ and be faithful and allied with him and his people. You do that by trusting in him, realizing that you can't be saved in any other way. Repenting of your sin, realizing that you are sinning against God primarily. Yes, we can sin against each other. When we say a hurtful word, it is against other people. When we hold a grudge against someone, it's against other people. But our sin, first and foremost, is against God. And so we need to turn from that. 
So maybe you're here and you're nervous about your name being in the book of life. And I urge you, as I just did a moment ago, trust in Jesus. He's not going to forget you. He's not going to forget to put your name in the book of life. Your hope is in him. You're taking God's character to the bank, not the content of your prayer, saying the right words, or meaning it 100%, being totally sincere about your prayer, things like that. Never doubt that God will ultimately overcome every wrong. So last Thanksgiving, my wife and my mother-in-law are like hugging each other as we watch this movie. Like, I don't know how this is going to end. Eric, is it going to be okay? Because I had seen the movie before. Even if I hadn't, I still would have taken a bet. As a non-betting man, I just assure you. Yeah, it's going to have a happy ending. The good guys are going to win. All the bad guys are going to lose. It was never in doubt. So enjoy the rest of the movie. And they did. In other words, Christian, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against Christ. Jesus himself said that. You can trust him to get it right, to win on the last day. So please, never doubt that God will certainly, perfectly overcome every wrong. Let's pray. Lord, may we be a hopeful people because we have worshipped you today, because we've heard from you today in this text, because we see the concept that you are bigger and stronger and you are victorious. You are the undefeated champion of the world. And we look forward to worshipping with you forever, to being in your presence as your sons and daughters forever. But in the meantime, while we are seeking to faithfully represent you here, would we be people marked by holiness because your spirit so powerfully works in us and enables us to walk by grace and to walk by faith. Pray that our hearts would be stabilized in an unstable world, in a world where we are bombarded with lies and error and foolishness from both inside our hearts and from without. Would you keep us faithful? Would you keep us strong even when people mock us? When we seem to be losing, when the day seems to be long, and the nights seem to be long, may we, Lord, hold fast to you. In Christ's name, amen.